Thank you, Pastor Brock and the rest of everybody who's been leading us in worship this morning. It's been great. Oh, man, James usually does this. This is a heavy table, James. Thank you for what you do. Wow. Good morning to you. My name is Lowell. I'm the lead pastor here at Centerpoint, and um, I've been hiding behind that screen for a couple minutes and just uh, thinking about what, what I had to share with you today. And um, I do want to say a word about this as we'll be um, voting, Steve, next week. Am I right? Where are you at, brother? There you are. And um, if you're not a member of Centerpoint Bible Church and this is your church, you need to join with us. Somebody told me one time this principle for deciding whether or not you should, you should become a member of Centerpoint Bible Church, and it's this. This morning when you woke up and you rolled over and you said to your wife, hey, let's go to church, was there any question of where you were going to come? Were you discussing like, well, we could go to this church, we could go to that church, or was it just assumed that when you're going to church, you come to Centerpoint? If that's the case, then this is your church. This is your church. And we invite you to join with us officially. Grab one of these constitutions. There's, this, is, uh, this runs through our beliefs doctrinally. It also talks about how we function as a church. I encourage you to partner with us. Next week, we'll be bringing some people into membership. The last sort of part of that process is we bring them in front of the church and give them what we call the right hand of fellowship. That just me- basically means we shake their hand in front of you. And so everyone knows that these are new members of our church. So if this is your church... And you know it, and I know it, join with us. Join with us, because that is God's plan for us to be connected to a local body of believers. Well, today I want to talk about our great God. I'm going to be in the book of Ruth. You should find that in your Bible, okay? Uh, you got the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible, and then you go into Joshua, Judges, Ruth. This tiny little book, four chapters only, right there in the beginning of your Old Testament, in truth, it's, a great, it's, it's, it's not really tiny, okay? It's not really small at all. It's, it's, it's few in number as far as verses. But the importance is, is very, very crucial. Because when things are very, very dark, like they were in the midst of this time period when Ruth is occurring, Ruth kind of rises as a glimmer of hope, as a shining bright light that says, not everybody has abandoned God. Because while this is happening, we're going to read some of it in just a few moments. When, this event, when these events are really occurring, much of the people of God, those who were supposed to be the followers of Yahweh, had abandoned him. And so if you're there at Ruth, look back at the verse in the, the very last verse before the book of Ruth. It's Judges chapter 21, verse number 25. This is the context of what's going on when the book of Ruth is occurring. In 2125, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the context where the book of Ruth is occurring. You might feel that way at times even right now, like everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Listen, I know it feels like things are really bad right now in our culture, you know that every single believer in the history of time has felt just that way. They felt just that way. Now, sure, we have the overabundance of media, and we have 24-hour news, and we have all these things all around us. But listen, folks, people who have not been followers of God, so non-God followers, have always revealed that in their practice. There have been times when it's been more evident and more obvious than others, but there's nothing really unique about our time. 
Sure, we are surrounded by a group of people, by a world system that is opposed to God. But that's the way it's been since Genesis chapter 3, when man first chose to sin. So in the book of Ruth, we, this is really the story of several women. It's the only book of the Old Testament named after a non-Jewish person, named after a woman named Ruth. Ruth is often held up to us as a, as, as a shining example of what a woman of God could look like, and that's, that's very accurate and very true. Likewise, the woman Naomi, she's an older woman. She, she evidences a, a true following of God. I was talking with a woman just last week, and um, she told me that she was at her church one time, and uh, she was there with her mother-in-law, and um, they went out, they listened to the sermon, happened to be on route that day, and they go out to the car in my mind's eye as I, I picture this story, and they're, they're heading out to lunch or whatever, and, and the mother-in-law says, you know, I remember her daughter-in-law sitting in the car with her. The mother-in-law says, I always wanted to have a daughter-in-law like Ruth. Now, how would that feel? How would that feel? I always wanted to have a daughter-in-law like Ruth. And the woman said she sat there and thought for a minute. In my mind, I picture a little bit of you know, pregnant pause. And she said, well, yeah. Well, I've always wanted to have a mother-in-law like Naomi. So, <laughs> You know, we, we have here a great example of followers of God, of people who have submitted their life to him. Now, they aren't perfect. They aren't perfect, and no one is. We all fall short of the glory of God. But God in, this, in these four short chapters is going to reveal some things about himself today that I think it's important for us. We've said this before, that, that in the book of Ruth, we have, we have the same promise maker and the same promise keeper. God is the same. He has not changed. Now, there's caution that we must practice when we turn back into the Old Testament. We have to be careful how we study this because though the promise maker and the promise keeper are the same, the promises themselves are a little different. They're a little different. There were, there were promises that God made to the people of Israel, to Ruth and Naomi, that don't necessarily apply to us today. They were under what we call the Mosaic Covenant. You've probably heard that before. I'll just give you just a snippet. Here's what it is. God made a promise with the, with the nation of Israel, and this was the promise during the Mosaic Covenant period. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. That is, that is the agreement that the nation of Israel was living under as they operated for about 1,500 years. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Listen, folks, that is, that is no longer the covenant that we are under today. If you go out here today and you start home and your car breaks down, that doesn't necessarily mean that you disobeyed God. Careful with this. Neither If you, if you are maybe a businessman or a businesswoman and, and, and your business is doing well, that doesn't mean that you've been honoring God. And you can look at your life and say, well, I must be doing great because my business is doing well. Now, there are those that right now probably are standing in front of a group of people at churches, and they're telling them that idea. They're telling people, if you obey God, he will bless you. He will prosper you. But folks, that is, that's the Old Testament covenant. And we have to be careful. 
Same promise maker, same promise keeper, different promises. Here's God's promise to you today. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. If you put your trust in Christ, he will forgive you. He has forgiven you. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's a promise that God is going to build his church, his bride, and the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That his church will continue to operate. Now, maybe not each individual local church, but the universal church will continue until Jesus returns to proclaim the gospel and see people trust Jesus. This is his promise to us. He promises us that if we seek his kingdom and his righteousness, he will give us the things that we need. We will have food and clothing and shelter. He doesn't promise you that he will prosper you greatly and you will be a wealthy person like Boaz, as we'll see just in a moment. That's not a promise that you're given. But you are promised that God's Spirit comes and resides in you. And all those who are put on Christ, the Spirit of God comes in and dwells them. See, these are the promises that we have. Do you know them? Do you operate in the strength of the promises of God? The only place you find them is in the Bible. I hope you're there on a regular occasion. Well, let's start back into the book of Ruth. Look just at verse number one, just as a brief review. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Last week we dealt with this at length, uh, 10 minutes too long as I recall, but um, last week we dealt with this at length, and we focused upon just the first chapter, and we saw that there was a great number of of tragedies that came into the life of Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their sons. There was a famine in the nation of Israel. Now, what do we know from Leviticus and Deuteronomy? That when the nation of Israel turns from God, he will bring a famine on the land. And he did that. No rain. And so the people of Israel didn't know what to do. They should have known what to do. Deuteronomy 28 tells them when these times come, when there is famine, repent, God says, and I will bring rain upon the earth, and I will bless your crops, and I will bless your womb, is what the Lord said in Deuteronomy 28. But they didn't repent Elimelech and his wife Naomi and and the two sons, they flee. They ran from Israel. Not a good decision. Not a good decision. But they went to to, to the enemies of God, Moab, and their tragedy increased. Naomi's husband died. Naomi's sons married pagan women who did not know God. They were Moabites. They were not followers of God. They go 10 years, these sons, married to these new brides, 10 years at least of barrenness. They want to have children, and there are no children. And then tragedy increases. The two boys die. And so Naomi is a widow. she's, She's lost all of her children. She has these two women who are now part of her life. I mean, don't 
Don't miss this. When these Moabite women married these Israeli men, they were marrying the enemies of the Moabites. So how the Moabites feel about these girls? They're not fans either. So now they're alone in a land opposed to God. And Naomi says, let's go back to Israel. I hear there's food. I hear the famine has lifted. Let's go back to Israel. Chapter 1 if you, as you look down over it, it's filled with a, with a word over and over and over. You'll find it in verse number 8. And I just want to say this. I hate to leave chapter 1. I hate, it's just so clear. The gospel and God's truth is just so clear. Chapter, eight, chapter 1, verse number 8, look what it says. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Then in verse number 10, they said, there, no, we will return with you to your people. Over and over and over, you see this word in the first chapter of Ruth. And it's the word return, return, return. Ten times in the Hebrew, ten times in the first chapter. And that word doesn't mean just to go back somewhere. In the prophets, it means to repent. It means to repent. What is God calling us to as we read chapter 1? Same promise maker, same promise keeper. He calls his people to repent. Perhaps you are in a situation now where you've made some bad decisions. You have gone places you ought not to have gone. Maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually. You have left the God of your youth. And you have now drifted into land that you ought not to be in your heart, in your mind. God says to you today, repent, return, return to him. Same promise maker, same promise keeper. This is the God that illustrated himself standing on the porch like a father watching out at the road waiting for his son to come back to return home. Remember the story of the prodigal son? That's what we have here. That's who Naomi is. She's a prodigal returning. She followed her husband to Moab. And now she's returning. And what God's going to share with us now is, is the story of that return. And honestly, just as important as the story of the return is the nature of our God. Now, I've got to go quick today because I'm going to do chapters 2, 3, and 4. And you know how it went last week. So I hope you brought lunch. Um, because we might be here a while. No, I think, I think we got a plan to get through this. And it's going to involve you spending some time this week kind of filling in the gaps. All right? But I'm going to, I'm going to do like a, almost like a flyover and land at certain spots. All right? We're going to fly over the book of Ruth. And we're going to land at a couple spots and talk about them. All right? So chapter 2, verse number 1, we have a new character that's now introduced to the narrative. 
a new character. And what I want you to know before, before I get back to this, I, I want us to see something, and I'm not going to have time to deal with it over and over and over. I need to trust that your, that your spirit-led mind will see these things, that as we look at the book of Ruth, we're going to see that God is the God of the common woman and man. He is the God of the small little ordinary details of your life. The common man, the common woman. There was nothing special about Naomi. She was just a regular, run-of-the-mill woman. And God worked in her life. He does that. There's probably close to 200 people in this room. And our God can speak to every one of our minds in a specific way. He is the God of the common and ordinary woman and man. But then he also is able and does pull back to 30, 40, 50, 60,000 feet. And now God, he's still concerned about the small details of the ordinary man and woman, but he also is orchestrating a grand purpose and plan. This is who our God is. He handles both. So chapter 2, verse number 1, you notice that at the end of chapter 1, it says, and and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That's significant. The famine has lifted. What does that mean? That the people of Israel have repented. God has raised up a judge, and the people of Israel have repented. They've turned now. They're kind of following Yahweh. So God lifts the famine, and the barley harvest is here. And we're going to be introduced now to one man, one single man, one, I believe, older man, one, I believe, single man, one, I believe, lonely, old, well-to-do man. In his name, is Boaz. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's. Her husband, Elimelech, had a relative. His name was Boaz. He was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. So he's a, he's a family member of Elimelech. That's the husband of Naomi. His name was Boaz. It says there he was a worthy man. That word worthy man, what it, often that word is translated into a mighty warrior. It's a mighty man, a powerful man, a man that's respected in the community, this Boaz character. And what we'll find as we read into the passage a little more is he was well-to-do. He owned property. He had servants and, and people who worked for him. But he was a generous man. See, God had blessed him, and he was a worthy man of honor, a worthy man of respect, but we will see that he was a generous man. See, God often blesses people not so they can spend it on themselves and include more toys that they might enjoy. God blesses people within a covenant relationship with themselves so that they will bless others. And we will reveal and we will reflect that generosity. And we will see Boaz do that in a mighty way. And Ruth, the Moabite, it's interesting how often whoever wrote the book of Ruth, which you don't really exactly know who wrote it, but nearly every time they reference Ruth, they say the Moabite. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, but to those who are living this, that means a non-Israelite. We have a person of the world who's converted to Yahweh, to the Lord, and the follower of the Son of God. 
She's a Moabite. Her name is Ruth, as you know. She said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall be found in favor. Now, the first thing I want us to do in our our first kind of land here in chapter 2 is I want to talk about gleaning. I want to talk about gleaning. How many of you have ever gleaned in your life? Yeah, I didn't think so. Oh, man, somebody has. That is shocking. Wow, I just expected no hands to be up. Two gleaners. Man, we got a couple of gleaners in the room. That doesn't happen very often. Some of you are like, well, what is a gleaner and what is gleaning? Well, let me tell you what it is. You You can see it described in the remainder of this chapter. And I trust that maybe you'll read this this week. I hope that you'll read it. You know, this book was read publicly every year during the harvest time in the nation of Israel. It was part of their worship. We're nearing the harvest time right now. You know, you go to the Apple Harvest Festival. Imagine now if somebody sort of rose up at a platform and everybody came around and gathered around and somebody opened up a big scroll, I guess, not a book, but a scroll, and they would read these four chapters of Ruth to remind people of God's care. And the first thing that we come across in this harvest tale is that of gleaning. Now, what is gleaning? I'll just kind of give you a snapshot of what it was. This is probably taking a place about 1200 B.C., That's over 3,000 years ago. It's an agrarian society. In your mind's eyes, you picture it. You need to picture fields now, vast lands covered with wheat and barley. And over here would be olives and and grapes and just a, a, a farmland before you. And we know from the end of chapter 1 that it's the, it's, the, it's the harvest time of barley. So these fields now are white with harvest. And there's no farm machinery. There's no tractors. It isn't there. It's all done by human labor. And Boaz, a wealthy man, would have a, a group of people that he had either hired out or were his servants, and they would go out and they would harvest in the fields. Picture some type of a cutting instrument, maybe a knife or, or maybe like a sickle, if you remember those things, okay? And they would grab the barley and they would cut it low. And they would, they would store up some in their hands. You can smell it, okay? If you've ever done a harvester, if you've ever worked at a farm, all right, you can, smell the, you can smell the product. I used to work on a farm when I was a teenager on a corn farm. I picked corn through the summer, and we would walk through the fields, these corn rows. We didn't have any machinery, okay? And it wasn't hundreds of years ago, but you get the idea. And, and they would hire teenage boys to just pick ears of corn. And I'll say to my wife now, when we're riding around, I'm like, I smell corn. There's a smell that's in the air. There's a feeling of excitement. The famine's been lifted. God is blessed. Look at our fields. Boaz is out there. He's just watching. He's an older man, but he's appreciating what God has done. He's a righteous man. And God finally lifted the famine. And there's going to be food for his family. There's going to be, a f- there's going to be food for his servants. But as in every society, there are disadvantaged people. There are people that are poor. And so God has designed a system to care for them because God has a heart for those that are poor. And so the poor in that community, those that for one reason or another, whether it was a mistake that they had made or just by the sort of happenstance of life, they are without. Surrounded by those with, they're without. 
And, and landowners are called to allow gleaning. So what would happen is, is the servants went through the field cutting the barley in this circumstance. They also gleaned grapes and they gleaned olives and they gleaned wheat. But as they're, as they're gleaning the, the, the barley, if they drop any of the barley, okay, the stalk of barley, if they drop in it, they don't turn around and pick it up. So you picture you've got, you've got armloads of, of this barley, and, and if it, it falls out of your hand, you do not pick it up. You don't turn around, according to Leviticus chapter 28, and pick it up. You leave it on the ground, because behind you comes those who are disadvantaged, the poor people of the community, the outsiders, people who have just sort of come and just attached themselves to Israel, hoping for maybe some kind of grace from God. Remember the woman? Remember the woman who said to Jesus... Let me just sit here like a dog gathering up the scraps that fall off the table. What she's saying is, let me glean. Let me glean, God. God says when we come to him, we come poor in spirit. We don't come arrogant. We don't come with pride. We don't come saying, hey, God, you know, you're getting a good deal with me. We come saying, God, I don't deserve you. I don't deserve you at all. But perhaps maybe some of what just kind of falls out can fall on me. Perhaps, because I'm aware of my sin. I'm aware of my brokenness. I know what kind of person I am, and all I can ask for is the scraps. This is gleaning. I'm not suggesting that every single person who gleaned had sinned and brought themselves into that circumstance, but some had. So Ruth is gleaning in the field there. We see it described all the way down to verse number three. She set out and went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field. Now, notice what it says. She happened to come. King James says it was by happenstance. This is a word that just means, from her perspective, just blind luck. She just fell into the, the, the field of Boaz. She didn't know this. Now, understand, she came to the field belonging to Boaz. Now, the narrator tells us something that Ruth doesn't know. Ruth doesn't know this at this time. But the narrator says, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And now we should all be going, oh, now that's an interesting little detail. Elimelech. Now, the story unfolds here, and again, I, I can't take the time to really discuss it because we're, we're low on time. But I do want you to see that Boaz knew the reputation of Ruth. Look at verse number 11. Boaz answers her, all that you have done. There's now been a conversation between Boaz and Ruth. And Boaz now says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know. The Lord, Yahweh, repay you for what you have done and full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What is Boaz saying? We know who you are. We know the decision you made. You have left the gods of your past and you have turned to the God of Israel and you are now hiding under the shadow of his wings. Great expression for what it means to trust Jesus. Whose wings do you hide under? Do you hide under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel? Or do you hide under your own wing? or the wing of your job, or the wing of your spouse, or the wing of your parents, or the wing of your children. 
Listen, all those wings break. They break. They don't really protect. Every single one of those will let you down. Why? Why, Lowell? Why? Because this whole earth and everything that is upon it is cursed by God because of sin. And it will not produce anything but thistles and thorns and heartache and groaning, Romans chapter 8. It could be that you're hiding under a false wing right now and you are groaning under the weight of that broken wing lying upon your back. Respond the way that Ruth did as she gleaned. Jump down now to chapter 2, verse number 14. I think maybe I have a wrong reference on the screen and on your notes. Um, it's chapter 2 is what I'm looking for. So let's, let's see this now. So now Naomi, she comes to find out. She, Naomi, this mother-in-law. Okay, so Ruth comes home and, and, and Naomi's like, so uh, I see you got a lot of barley. Where were you, uh, where were you working? And Ruth is like, oh, you know, I worked for this man, and he was a really good man. Oh, really, Naomi says, you know, she's kneading bread, or, you know, she's, she's cooking something. She's, she's doing something, kind of having this side conversation, you know, and Naomi's kind of distracted. But, but, oh, okay, what kind of a man was he? Good man. Oh, good, good, good man. Yeah, and, and big field, yes, yeah, good, good. And, and I, see you, I see you've got an ephah of barley. That's enough to feed us for two or three days. That's good, good, good. And then Ruth says, in his name was Boaz. Now, when Naomi hears that name, she's not looking at her bread anymore. She's like, Boaz? Really? Let me show you why. Her mother-in-law said, where did you glean? Verse number 19, chapter 2. Her mother-in-law said, where did you glean? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. I'm telling you right now, she might have dropped the wooden bread bowl to the floor. What? Boaz. Why, this man is a close relative of ours. One of our redeemers. Now we're coming to another word that we aren't very familiar with, but we need to know it. It's commonly called a kinsman redeemer. In the New King James, in the King James Version, I believe in the New American Standard, it says here, he is one of our kinsman redeemers. The way the ESV says it, they kind of break it down so we might understand what it means. This, the man, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Oh, this is big, big, big time news. Kinsman, redeemer. Remember I told you God is concerned for the downtrodden. God is concerned for those who are at loss. God is concerned for those who are disadvantaged. And one of the ways that God dealt with that is through gleaning, but another one is through a redeemer. Now let me, let me try to fill in your mind of a redeemer. If you're a follower of Jesus and been around any teaching of Jesus for any amount of time, you know that Jesus redeems us. And he came to give his life as redemption for us. But what does redeemer even mean? 
What does it mean when Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 20, verse number 8, or in Mark chapter 10, that he has come to provide us redemption? It was filled with Old Testament meaning. So we need to know what it means. Now, to redeem literally means to buy. It means to purchase. It's actually a word that that finds itself most often used in the slave trade. Hmm. Well, what happened is if a person found themselves in the nation of Israel now, in the nation of Israel, if a person found themselves so disadvantaged, so downtrodden, so broken by the circumstances of life that they would sell themselves into slavery, that would happen. You're starving to death. There's a man downtown that that is a very wealthy man. He has slaves or servants. He will allow you to become part of his property and he will then meet your needs. Well, if this happened to an Israelite, if this happened to an Israelite, God established a plan. You can, feel, you can see this laid out clearly, particularly in Leviticus chapter 25. This is laid out in detail what was supposed to happen. What should happen is that a, a, a relative of the person who is enslaved should they're responsible to go to that person and buy back their freedom. A close relative, a person of the same line, a person made of the same stuff, is supposed to go to the one, go to the one who is now, who's now a slave, And from their own selves, from their own belongings, buy that person back. God applied this to slaves. He applied this to land ownership. He even applied it to a widowed woman like Ruth. So here's what's supposed to happen. Ruth's husband died. So a close relative is supposed to come into her life and now care for her. There is no social security. There is is no life insurance. It's this plan. It's kinsman redeemer. That's it. And Boaz is one of those people. And Naomi knows it. And so we won't, I don't have time to walk through chapter 3. It's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty amazing story. I really encourage you to read it. It's, it's a story filled with, with tender love, with, with romance, with risk. In a, in a very different culture, if you read this, you're going to be like, what is going on here? Just, just read it. Know that Ruth is a righteous woman. Boaz, after chapter 3, calls her a virtuous woman. The same word that's used in Proverbs 31 for the virtuous woman. There's nothing inappropriate that happens in chapter 3. It's a cultural expression of Ruth, a younger woman, saying to this older man, if you're willing to marry me, I would be oh so happy. And it occurs. It occurs. And so what happens is this kinsman redeemer, he, 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 he finishes the day. And, and I, I want you to see what, what happens at the end of the story. Then we're going to pull back a little bit. So see the result of this kinsman redeemer in chapter 4. Okay, look at verse 13 with me. So Boaz took Ruth 
and she became his wife, and he went to her, and the Lord gave her conception. That's a miracle, folks. Understand, every time that God places a child in a mother's womb, it is a miracle of God. We know this to be true. It's not a mass flesh. It's not just some cells. It's not a fetus. It's a child. God did a miracle here and placed a child in the womb of Ruth. Oh, she was happy. And she bore a son, and the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. There's that term. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons and has given birth to him, this child. And Naomi, I want us to see here this life fulfilled, Naomi's life fulfilled. And the woman took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. This woman This older woman now who had had grieves and heartaches and sorrows, who had lost much throughout her life. She'd lost husbands and sons. She'd lost respect in her community. She had lost and lost and lost and lost. But through all of her losing, through all of her time of of life crushing her down, she did not turn her back on God. She did not turn away from God. She did not turn away from Yahweh. And we will see in just a moment, she spoke truth of him that's only learned in the hot furnace of life. It is when those moments come that crush you when things don't go the way you want them to and life kind of presses you down, okay, and it burns away all that extra stuff, the stuff you were relying on, the stuff you were trusting on, and it does not deliver. It is then, it is then that Yahweh shows himself real and we see him for real. And here she is, an older woman who has little. She doesn't have anything, folks. All she has is that baby in her arms and this Moabite daughter-in-law and she sings praises to God. If God took away it all, you guys, if God took away everything you have, it's all gone. Would he be enough? Do you know him? Enough. I want us to pull back just for a moment. I know I'm near the end of my time. But I want us to now take just a moment and and pull back to 30,000 feet and see just how God works. I I, I encourage you to look at those questions I put on your worship notes. Um, You know, ordinary everyday life. You know, can God work there? Do you need the care and the comfort of God? Are you in the place where that can happen, or where you can provide that for other people? But I want to pull back to what I think is the key verse of this whole book. If you want, to find, if you want one verse out of the book of Ruth, I think you'll find it in chapter 2, verse number 20. We already read it once. It's that key. It's that important. 
And Naomi, chapter 2, verse number 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, you know where we've been before this. You know where we're going. You now have the full story. You know what's happening. But hear what this woman says to her daughter-in-law. May he, speaking of Boaz, be blessed by the Lord. She prayed. This is a prayer. It's a spoken out loud prayer. May Boaz be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. We've got to talk about this. We need to talk about what Naomi said. Without the truth that Naomi is revealing, you have no future in heaven. Without the truth that Naomi is exposing, you have no hope of God working in your life. Without the word that Naomi expressed here, that's translated in my Bible as kindness, without that concept, you and I live our lives desperately alone without God. What is that word? That word is a Hebrew word that is, that is perhaps, apart from the name of God, perhaps the most important word in your whole Old Testament and we rarely even hear it. It's the word hesed. If I could say it with a Hebrew accent, it would sound more like hesed, but I can't really do that, okay? Hesed. Let me, let me share with you some places where you'll find this, okay? In Psalm 63, it says, because of your hesed, because your hesed is better than life, my lips will praise you. In Exodus 15, verse 13, it says, In your Hesed, God, you will lead your people whom you have redeemed. In Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, it says, Through the Lord's Hesed, we are not consumed, for his compassions are new every morning, and great is his faithfulness. What is this hesed? Now notice what Naomi says. Blessed be this man, okay? Blessed be by God, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Here, hesed is, is translated to the word kindness. But it's also translated at times to the word steadfast love, unfailing love, mercies, goodness, grace. There's all these words that, that the translators try to express to us this truth about God. And it's this. When God enters into covenant relationship with you, when God chooses in his grace, in his sovereign care, when God chose in his sovereignty to allow Ruth to stumble into the field of Boaz, who happens to be her kinsman redeemer. What a freak. Of all the fields, that's the one she lands at? Really? When God in his sovereignty allows you in a relationship with himself, he says, I am now bound to you with a hesed love. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always be loyal to you. My loyalty is as strong as any bond in all the world. It cannot be broken. God doesn't keep his covenant with you because you're in a covenant with him. The covenant you have with God matters because of his hesed love. 
God doesn't say, okay, you're one of my children. All right, I'll be loyal to you. No. He is loyal to his children. He loves his children. He never leaves them. He never forsakes them. And so to help us to understand that, he says, we are now in covenant relationship. You are my bride. You are my child. And the psalmist says in Psalm 63, I already read it once. Listen to it now. Because of your steadfast love, because it is better than life, my lips will praise you. Exodus 15, 13, now it says, in your unfailing love, your hesed love, you will lead the people you, you have redeemed. And Lamentations 3.22. It's interesting. Lamentations 3.22, while I adjust this microphone, Lamentations 3.22 and 23 was the very first sermon that I preached at Centerpoint Bible Church. First one ever. Tells you how important it is to me. I could pick any verse that I wanted to in all the Bible. And I chose Lamentations 3, 22, 23. Let me read it to you. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Through the Lord's hesed love, we are not consumed. Do you know the hesed love of God? Are you walking in the joy of that kind of love? That kind of knowledge of the God of the universe? He's concerned with the very small, ordinary details of life, like your life and where you live and what you do and your family and your children and your husband and your wife and your parents. He's concerned with all of that. But his hesed love is also concerned with his grand purpose and plan. He's drawing people to himself. He's inviting us to be part of that. This kind of God is too great for us to make up. He's too awesome for us to sort of craft out of our own imagination. Research the gods that man have made up. They don't have hesed love. They demand people to do for them. They demand people to work for them, to earn their way. But the great God of the universe says, I have chosen you in my hesed love. And his children say, your hesed love is better than life. And it's new every single morning. Naomi understood this. 50, 60, 70, 80 years of times of struggle, times of joy. But through it all, she knew God's hesed love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the fact that you have promised us things. Lord, you have, you have opened up things to us, truths about yourself. You have revealed these things to us.
who didn't have eyes to see them, who didn't have hearts to search for them, but in your grace, you drew us to yourself. Father, I thank you for your love, for your commitment, for your loyal care that didn't give up on a woman named Naomi or her daughter-in-law named Ruth. And you don't give up on us today. And this same Hesed love took you to the cross where you would bring redemption to those enslaved by sin. Listen, just as we pray today, if maybe you need to return to him, maybe you need to repent and return. Listen, you tell God that in your heart right now. Don't let this moment pass. Today might be the day. Today might be the day of salvation. It might be the day when God is calling you to him for real. He redeemed you. He offers you redemption. Will you receive it? Lord, go with us now. I pray that we would be bold in our witness, that we would be sent out by your words of the Great Commission, and we would show your hesed love everywhere we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.